Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest this week is Scott Fairchild, who for the past two years was executive director of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the campaign arm that successfully helped Democrats take back the Senate majority. Scott has been a friend of mine for 15 years. I got to know him in 2006 when he had just helped elect Congressman Patrick Murphy in a tough district outside of Philadelphia, and then he became Murphy's chief of staff. I was working for Rahm Emanuel at the time when he was chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, and my job was to work with all of the frontline members, uh, those newly elected Democrats from districts that were traditionally Republican seats, or at least very competitive seats. And every Monday, the chiefs of staff to those members and I would meet in a conference room in the Cannon House office building, and we would discuss what was coming up, what we needed to do, what challenges we were facing. And what made that meeting and that experience so great was the people around the table. They were so smart and so forthcoming with the challenges that they were experiencing and also the solutions that they were trying. And we all helped one another. And it was a formative experience. And Scott was one of the very best. Before helping elect Patrick Murphy, Scott had worked on a state Senate campaign in Vermont for John Kerry's presidential campaign, and then for Tim Kaine's bid for governor of Virginia in 2005. While he was on the Hill and still serving as Murphy's chief of staff, Scott had become known as a real political force. And if you need any proof of that, he was asked by the party's leadership to take a leave of absence from his government job and go help elect another congressman from a tough seat, this one in Illinois. So he did. And in 2009, Bill Foster became a congressman, too. In 2010, Rahm Emanuel asked Scott to be his campaign manager when he ran for mayor, a race that they won in 2011. Scott went on to serve as the campaign's director for the League of Conservation Voters for two cycles, then in 2015 became campaign manager for now Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. He became her chief of staff after she was elected, and when she was tapped by her colleagues to head the DSCC, she asked Scott to be its executive director. Scott and I recorded our conversation on Monday, February 15th, President's Day. Scott Fairchild, welcome to Staffer. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jim. I'd like to start my conversations with our guests at the beginning. Tell me about growing up. Where did you grow up and what was family life like? Um, I, I grew up on uh, Long Island, which is why I speak English so perfectly. <laughs> um, and a uh, long-suffering Knicks fan. Um, my, uh, um, my dad is a, a freelance photographer, does a lot of um, wedding f- um, photography, studios, but also um, um, like, um, uh, like uh, portfolio pictures, magazine work, that kind of stuff. Obviously, the, the wedding photography business is not exactly robust during the, the pandemic. Um, and then my mom uh, uh, is retired now. She taught first and second grade. So I have a, a, a half-brother who lives in a suburban Atlanta um, in, in uh, DeKalb County, which will come up again later in the show. Um, uh, he, uh, he and his wife um, um, are uh, professors uh, down in down in Georgia, and uh, and my younger sister um, is a uh, um, uh, fundraiser uh, at Amnesty International. So I've been living with living um, back home with my parents to, during the pandemic, but normally she lives uh, she lives in the city, and they live out on the island. 
Oh, that's great. So, so how did you discover politics? Very, very by accident. Um, so a friend of a friend of um, mine, basically a friend of a friend, um, was running for um, DC school board, and I started helping her out just in my free time, and just really, um, really fell in love with how it all works. Um, she she went on to to win. Um, served on the DC school board, but, um, I, you know, I think I realized very quickly that, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of time and energy, um, goes into charities and nonprofits and that's very worthy and worthwhile. But I realized quickly that I think electing good people and defeating, um, defeating, um, bad people is, uh, uh, I think one of the most impactful things you can, you can do to, um, to, um, to help the country. Well, you have just helped the country a lot. Uh, you're coming off a stint as executive director of the DSCC, uh, where Democrats took back the Senate. Uh, and we now have 50 votes uh, in the Democratic caucus, plus uh, Vice President Harris gives us the majority. Um, what, you know, how did you approach uh, guiding the organization this cycle that you can look back and say that contributed to the success. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, I, I was I'm very proud of the the, the team, both the f- folks directly on the candidate campaigns, um, but also at the DSCC. Um, w- I think we always knew that it was going to be tough. I think the the narrative in 2019 was that we had no chance and the narrative in 2020 was we were going to win, you know, 80 seats or something ridiculous and it was never that. It was always going to be, you know, somewhere between 48 and 52. That that was just always the deal. Um um so I I I'm, I'm really proud of how the people at the committee um um right after the November election, there wasn't a lot of, you know, finger pointing or heads down. Everybody just sort of said, okay, like we've, you know, two competitive, two competitive races in, in Georgia. We, we knew we were likely to have one, possibly two the whole time. So it wasn't a surprise to us that we had to compete in a runoff in, in, in Georgia. We, we knew that the, the Warnock seat was a near certainty to go to a runoff and we were pushing and hoping that the the Purdue Ossoff seat would go to a runoff. And so I, I'm proud of how quickly everybody, you know, um, got to work on, on the runoff. Much, much of that groundwork was laid pre-November 3rd, but a um, uh, good number of folks on the team, both people from Georgia and then others who weren't from Georgia, like, you know, moved down there for a couple months, um, myself included, but a number of other people on the team um, did that um, and played an integral role in uh in, in helping us win those races. Um, and that's the, but that's not to take away from the candidate campaigns, you know, Ossoff and Warnock, they, they ran great campaigns. The, the DS was, you know, was, was, was there to help them. So, I mean, today Democrats feel great about how we ended up the election, generally speaking, won the white house, very exciting, took back the Senate, extremely exciting retained the House, lost more seats than we were anticipating, but nonetheless held the House. But after Election Day in November, things were pretty glum. Um, And I think it does go to the expectations that you were talking about. 
But folks looked at those two races in Georgia and a lot of Democrats in Washington just sort of like shrugged their shoulders and were like, well, we'll never win two. So what did you see about Georgia and both of those races that others were missing? Um, yeah, I think um, I think, you know, we knew we knew from both the margin and the presidential, but also the, the margin in the 2018 elections um, that Georgia was starting to trend more and more purple. Um, you know, I, I would always, always laugh with my Nevada experience back in 16 when people would talk about Nevada being like blue or red. Guys, it's, it's just a two-point deal. That's just what it is. And Georgia's, Georgia nowadays is the same way. We, we knew we had great candidates. We knew that Leffler and Purdue had some, some huge hits against them, both around pandemic relief, but also around um, stock trading. Um, and then we knew there's a, you know, this, and, and this is true in other states, but it was certainly true in the Georgia runoff that there's a coalition of former Republicans, moderate Republicans, suburbanites, um, combined with our democratic, um, our sort of de- more democratic um, traditional base, African-American community, but also in places like Georgia and other states, a growing Hispanic API community. You combine that with this, um, the increased democratic performance in the in the suburbs. Um, you know, you've got a you've got a, a, a possible winning coalition, um, and that we we knew that was going to be the case, and we also knew that turnout was going to be really high on both sides. Um, uh, but we certainly knew it was possible. So you know, the difference between taking back the Senate and not taking back the Senate. Uh, Obviously, came down to those two races in Georgia, but there were other races across the country. Some we won, some we didn't win, but all of them really close. And when you're talking about millions of votes cast, cast and the margins being in the thousands, single-digit thousands, what are some of the things that you can look back on and say, all right, we did that really well? Like, here's a change or, or a tactic that we deployed that paid dividends at the, at the margin's edge. Yeah, I, I think I think there are three things that that we did uh, really well this cycle at the at the at the committee. Um, the first was we invested really early um, in our grassroots work. Um, the digital department at the DS in two years went from five people to thirty people. Wow. Um, the both the grassroots fundraising out of the committee more than tripled, but it wasn't just the fundraising. There was a lot more campaign communication happening through and with the digital platforms. So that was one thing I think we did really well. Um, um, I, I, by design, at the start of the cycle, I added a lot more people at the committee who had, uh, had managed Senate races. Um, I didn't want to be the only one who had, who had done that. So the, the director of the independent expenditure, Mark Goldberg, he um, ran Maggie Hassan's successful race in 2016. He came on to run our independent expenditure. Uh, and then I hired two senior advisors who split the map to be the leads in all the key states. Um, Justin Baraski, who ran Sherrod Brown's race in 2018, uh, and Christy Roberts, who ran um, John Tester's race uh, in 2018. 
uh, you know, I knew um, all of them from running Cortez Masto's race, but um, I just, I wanted a lot more people with campaign manager experience in the building. Um, so Justin and Christy split the map on the, the, I know you know what this means, but on the hard side or coordinated side for your viewers, the, the side that's allowed to deal directly with campaigns. And then Goldberg ran the independent expenditure on the soft side or the independent side that is not permitted to, to talk to the campaigns. Having that much experience in the building paid huge dividends and all, all three of them did, did tremendous, um, did tremendous work. And then the last thing I think we, we, we did well was we really ramped up a lot of the field and, um, and turnout work. Um, and I think sometimes the committee stays away from that in presidential years, but it was helpful for us to supplement uh, or complement the work, the great work the Biden folks were doing in a number of the key states. Is there anything that you look at and you say, I, I wish I had done this or I would do something slightly differently if I had a replay? I mean, I, th I think the, the biggest thing that has to change, and I think anybody who's being honest um, in the House, the Senate, the White House, the Republican, Democrat would admit that um, the way we do polling has to change. Um, the, not only are the, are the numbers getting less and less accurate, but we're clearly not reaching and testing messages with nearly enough, on, enough uh, of the electorate. So how we, how we do polling um, has to change. And that's not just for the like head-to-head, -head, you know, who's up, who's down stuff. Well, that's part of it, obviously, for allocating resources. But if you're not getting an accurate sample, you're not testing messages effectively. That combined with the horse race, the allocation resources, you know, is something that's got to gotta change. Um, the numbers were, the polling was wrong across the board and it was wrong in both parties. Uh, but it was all wrong in the same direction, which was to our, de to our detriment. There's a, there's a tradition in Washington um, after cycles um, where the heads of party committees are invited by news organizations to sit on a panel and do a conversation kind of like this, which is sort of backward looking, like what happened, what went right, what went wrong, et cetera. Um, you know, but given what played out in Georgia this cycle um, and what was communicated out of the NRSC, tell me, if you were to be put on a panel with your counterpart from the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, what is something that you would say or want to make sure that they heard? I mean, I think this last election cycle, um, um, you know, I think that the tone and tenor of campaigns have, have to change. Um, I am no stranger to negative advertising. Um, I use it. I will continue to use it. Uh, certainly not a shrinking violet when it comes to negative advertising. Um, but I think, I think some of the ads, especially against Reverend Warnock were, um, and this, this is, this is my view, but I think some of the ads against Reverend Warnock were, were pretty darn close to yelling fire in a crowded theater. Um, and for, I mean, for those who, who are uh, unfamiliar with Reverend Warnock, uh, Senator Warnock, he is African-American. And, you know, the, the environment in Georgia 
post-November in particular was a, a tinderbox, right, with the president saying the election had been stolen. Every day, that was a huge driving narrative. Um, yeah, the, they were the, elections, the elections stolen and, you know, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are, you know, are going to end Western civilization and, you know, um, turn turn the, the, the state and the country into a, you know, socialist, communist, uh, you know, paradise. It's just patently ridiculous, um, patently ridiculous kind of stuff, but, but dangerous. I think the rhetoric's really dangerous. And that's, you know, and that's different than this person's too liberal or too conservative and they're bad on this or they're bad on that. You know, like I said, I, I'm not like decrying negative advertising, but the, um, you know, the, the notion that, um, you know, the, the notion that like Raphael Warnock is a, you know, is a, is a threat to the, the, to the existence of the, the military when his, when his father was in the army is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, and yeah. dangerous, really dangerous. Yes. So staying on the, on the look forward, um, you were chief of staff to Congressman Patrick Murphy, uh, the last time Democrats had control of both chambers and the White House. And we proceeded to have a wipeout election go against us in 2010. So what advice do you have for party leaders today um, that would help Democrats deliver on their legislative agenda, but not experience the electoral uh, defeat that they experienced in 2010. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we get to that, I figured I would uh, make make news on on staffer. I'm I'm going to be uh, going back as Senator Cortez Masto's chief of staff. Congratulations! That means you're going to be right back in the center um, of it all and helping determine what makes it from a bill exactly. and into a law. But yeah, I think I think one of the key takeaways from 2010. I, in, in my view is um, um, when, when there's deals to be made on criminal justice reform, uh, immigration, um, um, make them like let's let's um, let's see see what we can actually do to to get to 60 and and have bipartisan um, measures become law. But that bipartisanship can't stand in the way of pandemic and economic relief. Um, we've got like we have to get that done. We got to do it with um, budget rec. We can't sit around. We can't like spend you know the whole odd year like we did in two thousand and nine. Just you know, I guess I would say don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and lakes that you're used to. <laughs> that was such a polite so, way. To, I wasn't sure what you were going to fill in there. The the the, 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 Gen, the Gen Xers who listen to Staffer will will laugh, and the younger people will have to will have to look up the lyrics. But I, I do think the you know on on pandemic and economic relief, um, we we've, we've got to move. And then look, let's see if let's see if we can actually do old fashioned bipartisan Senate bills on. Um, on, on some on some other uh, other priorities, you know, is there a deal to be had on immigration reform? Is there a deal to be had on criminal justice reform? Let's see, let's see. Um, but on some of this ec economic and pandemic relief, we just we have to we have to do we have to be um, aggressive through budget reconciliation. You have been a chief of staff in the Senate, and as you said, you're about to be again. Uh, you've also been a chief of staff in the House. The two chambers are known for their differences, but are there similarities that are underappreciated? 
Um, I mean, I think, um, I, th I think, uh, I have, I have, um, not turned into the Senate snob that I'm supposed to. I actually like and enjoy working in, in, in both chambers. Um, I think the, um, bipartisanship in the bipartisanship, when I worked for Congressman Murphy, um, we thought bipartisanship was getting tougher and things were bad under George W. Bush and the start of the Obama administration and the Iraq war. And we thought partisan tensions were bad and bipartisanship was hard. Boy, were we wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's even worse now. Um, so I, th I think, you know, for the sake of the country, we've, we've got to get some meaningful bipartisan legislation done. I'm not talking about the, the pandemic economic relief bill, but some of these other measures, we've got to show the American public that, you know, we can, we can get things done in a bipartisan way, even if they're medium sized. You know, both of those two members, Patrick Murphy and Senator Cortez Masto come from very challenging political geographies. Um, uh, Congressman Murphy's district outside of Pennsylvania at that time was a purple district at best, as is the state of Nevada. Um, you know what? But most, uh, you know, members of House and Senate don't live in uh, competitive districts, right? They are sort of reliably safe districts and produce either a Democrat reliably or a Republican reliably. What you know, would be helpful for members from those seats to understand about the existence of what's known as a frontline member, um, right, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I think, I mean, to, to me, this, this may seem obvious, but it doesn't always happen. Um, um, but I think, if, you know, if you have to listen to purple and red state um, members and senators, I've if a hundred percent of cardiologists told you not to take a pill, you probably wouldn't take it. Right. Um, and so if a hundred percent of people in purple and red states or 95% of people in purple and reds who represent um, red or purple congressional districts or, or states say like, <laughs> don't, don't, don't split up. Don't go into the basement. Like, um, <laughs> you know, we should listen to them. Um, you know, they're, um, their their views should should carry great weight in the caucus, and unfortunately, a lot of the purple and red state members are more junior, right? Because you know the best way to build seniority is to not lose an election time after time. So even though they're more junior in both the House and the Senate, like take what they have to say um, extremely seriously, because you know it turns out that um, you know it turns out that like. Connor Lamb in Western Pennsylvania might might know a thing or two about Western Pennsylvania. Um, so I think that's you know that's really helpful, e even though a lot of the time, the 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 blue dogs or the moderate Dems are are more junior members of the caucus. They represent some of these tougher districts. So just you know take their give give their views like great weight would would be my advice to the to the blue staters to the safe seaters. So the, the senators are obviously going to have to work through a great deal of negotiations amongst themselves. They have to do it with the House and with the White House. 
Is there anything that, you know, you think it's important for the Biden administration uh, to be thinking about now as it's trying to navigate challenges on Capitol Hill? I mean, I, I don't think I have to give them this advice. I think they they've probably taken to heart the same lessons that you and I have taken from the the 2009 and, and 2010 experience. So I, I, I don't I don't have to like dispense it as some sort of sage wisdom to them. I think they saw the, the same thing we saw, which is like, you know, we we've we've got to be aggressive with the recovery. Um, we shouldn't try and water it down um, to, to chase a couple Republican votes. We've got to be aggressive with the economic and pandemic relief. Um, and but that said, I I agree with um, I agree with President Biden and people around him. I know they get sort of you know mocked by the political intelligentsia sometimes for for trying to be bipartisan. But it's the right instinct. We've got to do both. We've got to be really aggressive through budget rec on pandemic and economic relief. But then we have to we have to really dig in and try to get some great bipartisan work done on, on other areas where, you know, there might be an agreement to be had. So I, I think that, look, I, I don't I'm not saying that like, you know, I don't think President Biden is like scribbling furiously in his notebook right now. I say I think I think we all, you, me, the, a lot of people, a lot of our friends in the administration, all learned that sort of from the the last recession and the 2009 2010 experience. Are you suggesting President Biden is not a staffer listener? Well, I just say he wasn't maybe writing it down. Uh, right. Okay. I, so committing yeah. it to memory, just not jotting right. it down. That's I got right. it. Good. That's right. Um, I want to ask about you as uh, as a staffer, as a manager, because you have hired and managed hundreds of people over your career and run organizations with hundreds of millions of dollars. You talked about the team being such a huge part of this cycle's success at the DS. So what do you look for when hiring staffers? Um, you know, I, th- I think the you know, you have to look for people who are great managers in their own right. Um, I am certainly not afraid to, to delegate. Um, and so you have to have people who um, are both collaborative, but also not afraid to take the ball and, and, and run with it. Um, you you kind of have to have that, that blend and that balance. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think we'd certainly achieve that at the, the committee this cycle. We had some really experienced uh, really experienced people who helped grow the grassroots program for both digital and mail. We had a lot of fundraising success, but then we also had a lot of field and turnout success, um, a, lo- a lot of comms success. So, um, you know, I think you, you try and, you know, you can have lots of different personalities, but I think the key is people who are both collaborative and decisive. Is there any... Uh difference in the qualities you look for when hiring for a political operation versus a Senate operation or a congressional operation? No. Um, do you want to elaborate on? No, I'm just kidding. Um, what about the, uh, I'd like this question in terms of advice. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten as a staffer? Um, best piece of advice I've gotten as a staffer. Um, 
you know, and maybe you'll believe this. Some of your other listeners won't, but this really happened. I, I promise. But the person who taught me to unplug and aggressively go on vacations and um, step away from work was Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. um, you know, he's, um, you know, he's, he's, he thinks, you know, you should work hard, but then you should also vacation hard and like aggressively unplug when you, when you step back from work. So you can really come back recharged. And I know that will sound shocking to a lot of your listeners, but I'm telling you, um, you know, he told me, you know, he told me to, to, to do that very thing after the Chicago mayor's race. And, uh, I know he's the same way when he, you know, he, when he takes a, takes a break, he really recharges with, the with his family. So, um, work-life balance from Rahm Emanuel. So, so he is a obviously famously political animal. Um, and he asked you to run his mayoral campaign. So there is no higher compliment that he could pay anyone in the, in the political world. Um, what did you learn from him? You know, he was a candidate, but he's also run a lot of campaigns and done a lot of the jobs that, um, you know, people in politics hope to do, um, even as a staffer. So what did you pick up from him along the way? You know, it's 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 funny, um, both in his race for Chicago mayor and Patrick Murphy for Congress, um, first Iraq war vet elected to Congress back in 2006, and then Catherine Cortez Masto was the first Latina senator in American history. Um, I think all three of them, very those were three very different races, three very different personalities. But I think the one thing they all did really well was they they understood early the candidate lane and the campaign manager lane, um, and a lot of um, a lot of candidates don't get that. Even Rahm, as successful as he was as a political operative, got that he's he's in a different role. He's the candidate, and you have to do candidate things, and your campaign manager has to do campaign manager things. So describe um, those lanes for those who aren't as familiar. Describe those lanes, and you know what you mean by the separation. Yeah, I mean the you know the. The best person to to talk to as many voters as possible is the candidate, not the campaign manager, um, and and there so their time becomes hyper valuable. So if the candidates um, on a race, I'm not talking about like Rahm in particular, but in general, if the candidates on a race are spending their time managing the consultants, the staff, and the campaign operations. They are not talking to voters. They're not talking to donors. And the best person to talk to voters, the best person to talk to donors is is the candidate. So keeping those, you know, keeping those um, those roles separate and collaborative is, you know, is really important. And I think, you know, Murphy, Rahm, Cortez Masto, all very different people, but they all sort of grasp that. And I think that's why, you know, they were all successful. You know, you mentioned they, despite that similarity, they do have different personalities. Did you find yourself tailoring, you know, your management of them uh, to fit their personalities? Or was it more, hey, this is who I am. Take me as I am. It, it's less them, but it's um, more the campaign manager should should balance out the, the candidate with the team. It's less about sort of tailoring your personality to the candidate, but it's, you know, with... Um, um, 
with you know with rom you don't need like two like really high energy aggressive people like freaking out at the staff like that's <laughs> like you so you know with in rom's race i think i was a little bit more like camp counselor right and that's like you know that's just you've got to like have that sort of that balance um but you know that you have to you know you have to um you have to like sort of adjust for the purpose of this the staff and and that campaign team to you know to help um to help with the the sort of candidate personality so now you are headed back uh into the senate as chief of staff to senator cortez masto and i i i don't think it's a an exaggeration to say that the environment you're going back to is different than you the one you left just two years ago and probably just two months ago. I mean, the events of early January are still so raw and fresh. You know, how are you thinking of managing um, an operation differently today, um, given all that staffers are thinking about that they weren't thinking about you know, even a short period of time ago. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a big adjustment. I mean, luckily, a lot of the same, same, same people from two years ago in, in Catherine's office. Um, but the, um, but um, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's two different challenges. You have the, the pandemic piece, and then you also have the, the, the insurrection uh, piece. So I think the, you know, the working remotely piece just has to change. Uh, just no question about it. Um, but the, uh, you know, that's a challenge we've all been working on to, for about a year now, but the, you know, coming back to, to work and seeing the nine foot, um, fence posts with the razor wire was, um, it's, it's really depressing. Um, the United States Capitol should never look like this. Um, so hopefully that goes away quickly. Um, I don't think we should follow up the underreaction from January 6th with an overreaction. Um, so uh, this has got to go away. This is like, you know, the, the Capitol complex should be, should be um, accessible. Um, I know, I know there's a pandemic, but the, the razor wire has got to go. It's, it's not, it's not right. Um, so it's, you know, we, we got to get through that. Um, so let me ask you, uh, because You've been chief of staff, um, you know, House and Senate, but also bookended by 15 years. What's something about being a chief of staff uh, that you understand better today than you did when you were chief of staff for the first time? Um, I mean, I th- you know, I think uh, I think I'm, you know, um, probably m- more measured and, and, and less arrogant than I was um, than I was, you know, 15 years ago. I guess that's probably true of lots of us when we get, we get older, maybe we get, you know, um, uh, a little more measured and a little wiser. So, um, but I think, um, what's up? I said life teaches, life teaches lessons. Yeah. But the, um, but no, I think, um, I, I think that the, the the biggest the biggest change is as you get older as a as a manager is I think you admit that you know less and less you know you're not like you know I'm not the same like brash arrogant person I was in in my twenties um, and I think I'm a better manager for that because I spend more time you know just admitting what I don't know. Well, I liked you even back then, 
So don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> you, you were you were one of you were one of few. You, were, you 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 would always make sure I I won the Rami Awards as as often as possible. So. Voter, voting population of one. Um, <laughs> Okay, so uh, just speaking of, of life lessons, um, I, I'm going to turn to my uh, recurring questions uh, that I love. Uh, tell me about a time that you royally screwed up as a staffer and what you learned from it. Yeah, um, I think, um, um, boy, there's there's a there's a there's a, a catalog of these, but I think um, when I first. Um, when I went from being Patrick Murphy's campaign manager to his, to his chief of staff, um, I, I was still like in campaign manager, like fifth gear. Um, and when you go to the official side, I think you've, you've got to like, you've got to measure twice and cut once. So I think, I think, um, I probably spent the first couple months as his chief of staff, like a bull in a China shop, both, you know, on the, on the, on the Hill, but also, you know, with him and the operation. And I think it took a few months to be, wait a minute. Like it, it's not the same campaign manager and chief of staff are similar, but they're different, like slow down, collaborate with more people, get advice from people you, you like and trust. Um, and so, and I think that, you know, a couple months in, I was maybe a, a little, made that adjustment a little bit better. And, 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 and he didn't, uh, and he didn't, and he didn't beat me up for, for, um, for, for being like that. He, he, uh, he gave, he, he forgave me, which was good. So, <laughs> uh, no, you guys had a great simpatico. I, it, it's worked H having, having been able to observe you, um, work with a number of, of members, you have drawn on different, uh, skills that you have in your toolbox to help all of them be their best selves. Um, but let me ask another question. It's called Across the Aisle. Who is a Republican staffer or official that you admire and why? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think um, uh, one of my favorites, he, he was um, Murkowski's chief of staff. Now he's a former. He just he just left. But um, Michael uh, Pulowski, or uh, Fish, as he's known, uh, um, He's, uh, I think he's a, um, somebody that uh, is well-respected on both sides of the aisle. Somebody that you, uh, like, like, like his boss, somebody you can, you can, um, you can work with. Um, so certainly I would be both Senator Murkowski and, and, and Fish, I think would be, would be top of the list. That's great. Okay. Last question for you. If I were to raise enough money to build a hall of fame to staffers and put it on the national mall, who would you nominate for inclusion? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think Sean Sweeney would have to go in there. That would, Amen. he would be a, he would be a high pay. He would hate it and complain the, <laughs> the entire time, but I think, uh, Sean Sweeney should go in there. And then, um, uh, Harry Reid alum Daryl Thompson would be a, another good, good choice. Um, um, the, they would, they would, and they would, and and they would both complain about it, but they, but they both, they both deserve to, both deserve worthy consideration. That's right, and uh, a sign of a good staffer, like not not rushing to the limelight. Their instinct is to put it, you know, put the spotlight on others. Um, 
Scott, I, I could talk to you all day and I could pick your brain about political insights uh, forever. I, I want to uh, thank you um, for spending time with us today and thank you for what you did this cycle. It was, it was my pleasure and I'm happy to announce uh, coming back to the to the Senate on, on staffer with, with, with you, Jim Papa. I, <laughs> Likewise. I hope, I hope this, this, this news doesn't, uh, isn't too turbulent for the markets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, pal. See you later. Take care now. Okay, everyone. I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.